You're listening to This Thing We Call Art, a podcast about how we are in a society that is inherently kind of built not to listen to art, to voices like ours. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihood since 2017, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 2nd of December, 2022, with Ruth Lee. Ruth Lee is a curator producer based in Southeast London and is currently a senior creative producer at Somerset House Studios. A former mentor on the London Creative Network program with Space Studios, she has specific experience in public sector events-based programming, as well as commissioning and supporting both new and established artists from a wide range of creative disciplines. As a result, she has formed long-lasting active networks within the arts and culture landscape of London over the past 12 years. Through programming large-scale events, festivals, and site-specific projects, she is passionate about projects and work that explore different perspectives within art institutions and wants the language of the art world to be more open and accessible. Originating from an architecture background, Ruth has a master's in curating contemporary art from the Royal College of Art. She worked for a number of years at the Victoria and Albert Museum, or the V&A, which included leading on the Friday Late program there. After going freelance and having two children, she worked on projects for organizations such as the Welcome Collection, Museum of London, Culture Mile, City of London, and now Gallery. She ran the East London Comics and Arts Festival, or LCAF, funded by the Arts Council England for six years, before moving from freelance life to Whitechapel Gallery, where she was the curator of public programs, a maternity cover, and led on the Nocturnal Creatures Festival in 2022. I met Ruth in 2021 when we both started working as mentors in the Space Studios London Creative Network program. I spoke with them at the cafe at Tate Britain. The audio quality for the season is varied, so remember that the transcripts for all these conversations are available on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. Our conversation was an hour and 15 minutes long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you in at the beginning. asked me why I want to interview you. Yeah, why, seriously, why do you want to interview me? Why are you asking me why <laughs> I want to interview you? Because I guess like I, I think I prefer to be behind the scenes. I think the thought of kind of giving a talk or um, talking about my own like practice um, is a total like reversal. And I think actually the one of the, biggest roles, parts of my role, is giving other people a voice. Like, I don't particularly think my story is that interesting, but there we go. Like, that's just... Why is it important for you to give other people a voice? Because we, we are in a society that is inherently kind of um, built to not listen to our to voices like ours so I guess that's always been an interest of mine to pick up on those that might not necessarily be um, the assumed fit for the art world that maybe sit on the periphery of what it means to be to work within art and be, and be part of that world so I guess um, that has always been my interest and I think that's kind of lent itself to a lot of the things that I've done, so, yeah. And you said before we were recording that you don't like doing interviews. 
I guess it's not that I don't like them, but I feel probably more like naturally uncomfortable being like having to kind of I will do them if I have to like give a talk or have any kind of public presence, I guess. Um, and maybe that goes back to that whole question of like curator versus producer um, and how those things are defined. And as a curator, you're kind of expected to have um, be able to coherently like express your opinions. <laughs> I guess that's why. Maybe let's start with curator versus producer. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess it's um, because I studied curating. That's my background. I originally wasn't um, was from a design background. Was in architecture, and so I had this kind of formal curatorial education during my masters. Um, but what that teaches you is all the kind of conceptual notions of like being in the art world, um, how how you think about curatorial thinking versus like art artistic practice and so on. And like actually the reality when you when you enter like the working field is just a totally different thing, right? Like actually I think what ends up being important is like your ability to kind of communicate with everyone from like uh, curators and artists to security guards and visitor services and the cleaners and um, and also yeah the, the practical aspects of what it means to kind of do public programming which is my background too um, it does raise the question of like what is a curator and I remember being in this like um, youth session um, at Whitechapel Gallery my colleague who's the curator of youth programs invited like some of us to come and speak to um, Duchamp and Sons which is the youth collective at Whitechapel and they're all like between 16 to 25 I think <laughs> and I sat next to this girl who just turned around to me and she's like what even is a curator anyway? Is it just like, just glorified admin, essentially? And I was like, you know what, you're probably not wrong. Like, actually there's this like, assumption that, and, and this hierarchy when, when you think about the word curator and what that lends itself to um, and how you're perceived, I guess. And it is, seems to be this like, want of everyone. <laughs> if, if that's the path you're taking to be, to be titled in that way but actually what I guess my question is what does that mean and it's the perpetual existential crisis for me so um, which is actually why uh, I recently joined Somerset House because um, my role is kind of partly a maternity cover but also um, kind of spanning this gap at the moment because uh, their director of studios has gone on maternity leave and the head of studios has taken her role and I'm, I've taken kind of the longer lead creative projects within that. But the team's really interesting in that like institutionally, like I feel like this is quite unusual, they've made the conscious decision not to have any in-house kind of curators so to speak. So actually a lot of, like my team were all producers or programmers or coordinators um, 
and I think that lends itself to how Somerset House, um, what their relation, what what the studio's relationship is like with artists, in that everything is feels far more artist-led, um, and it feels as though the program is very much in the hands of the artists, and it's that becomes their testing ground compared to perhaps other institutions whereby there is this kind of curatorial remit that spans across the program. Um, yeah, I guess, and for me it was a bit of a test to see like um, where I was at, like actually this role, so my current role is senior creative producer and like what does that entail, what does that incorporate does that incorporate some elements of like curatorial thinking yeah I definitely think so but also um, it maybe removes assumptions um, in another sense so yeah I'm, I'm exploring that within my own working life like how that sits with me like whether that feels right um, but I don't know it's interesting like what my colleague like Set was talking about this yesterday about how so he's a producer and how he sometimes doesn't know what his position is because we have external curators that come in and we have and then we're as a team producers um, and I thought that was an interesting point you know that question of ownership who has that ownership over what we do and like whether that's an exhibition or a, or a public program or yeah. Was that kind of, when you went to school uh, for curating, was that conversation around ownership a part of kind of like, this is the artist's role, like this is the curator's role, like was that a part of that kind of conversation? Or like was it, what was that conversation? I don't even know if that was a, a conversation at all, to be honest. Like, um, I came in like probably very naively into into the whole contemporary art context like um, the MA that I did was a paid MA so it was a work-based MA which I so I wouldn't have been able to afford to go if I hadn't been on this placement and you had to be an ethnic minority and you had to meet these certain like criterias and it was all about you know diversifying the workplace which was you know 12 years ago now so so it was a slightly different time um, and I think it was almost there was this expectation that you had this like the curators had this way of speaking that was to me like quite incoherent and like um, hard to get my head around and it made me think a lot about um, actually if I'm finding this hard like how are artists finding this when they're in that situation talking to a curator like um, the language used and everything lends itself to, to, to certain hierarchies I guess or expectations that you you have certain knowledges um, so I guess I was quite cynical in that respect um, about the course but at the same time you know I think it um, it opened my eyes up to a lot of like formats and ways of thinking that I probably wouldn't have thought about before, being from probably more of a practical design background. So, yeah.
So in terms of design architecture, um, the design of spaces, what was your focus in that? Um, I think actually that's why I wanted to study curating because what I was interested about was that um, connection to space and how like you can use space in a temporary way whereas with architecture you know it's, it's a never-ending will this even get built <laughs> question um, like you never really see the things that you design come to fruition like not at that stage anyway and like it excited me that you, that there was this this world in which like you could put on an event an event or or test out an exhibition and it, it to be really site specific and to be really kind of catered towards a certain place and space so i think that's where i was coming at curatorially with this kind of um mindset of thinking about yeah, probably a more architecture perspective, you could say. Um, and that's what really, so for example, my work placement was at the V&A and that was because of my design background. And um, that's what I loved about things like working on the Friday Late program because it was so inherently like part of the spaces and, and it had to, um, it really had to like respond. And I think, the amazing thing about the Friday Lates is that um, you're always having to respond um, to a collection, to a, um, a location, whether that's um, an exhibit or a like permanent collection, or whether actually it's a corridor or a staircase or a garden, you know. And um, I think. Yeah, it's exciting because it's temporary. Um, you can experiment and I think you can get it wrong and that's, that's okay because it's not something that would ever have a certain permanence like, like architecture would, I guess. Um, so it's more fluid, for sure. Um, and that was the premise of the V&A Friday Lates is very much about kind of encouraging new audiences into the museum to kind of experience the collections in different ways and to encourage them to explore the museum which is a, like a huge museum so it's like you need to try and like get people through it somehow right um and yeah i was like my god this is amazing like um it's a format i'm not familiar with it's like a something really exciting to work on and I was really fortunate that as part of my MA at the, at the yeah, end I was able to like curate or produce <laughs> or manage whatever you want to call it like one of the Friday Lates which is around the relationship of art and architecture so kind of went full circle a bit and that was really really great I learned a lot at the V&A for better or worse like yeah um the, this class that I taught about parties, so this class was originally taught in, I think, like 2013 or 14 at Oxford School of the Arts with Shannon Stratton, mm -hmm. and, um, and then she taught it another two times, um, also at Oxford School of the Arts, which is within itself, like, a, it's, um, you know, it kind of got started at the same time as, like, Black Mountain Schools, like, one of these kind of alternative um, artist educational environments. It has 
a school and also has an artist residency and it's in Saugatuck, Michigan. It has its own campus. So it's a camp. It's already a place that has a lot of different kinds of um, spoken and unspoken social rules, different kinds of spaces. And how did that come about? Like, the party class. Yeah. Uh, so Shannon Stratton, um, I think that she took over someone's class that was about utopias and she started thinking a lot about um, kind of like how one person's utopia is completely different than another person's utopia. So like what does it mean to talk about like utopias, this like kind of generalized thing that we're all aiming for or something. And so then her class was quite sociological. Most of the texts are kind of are sociological. And I kept a good portion of the text in my class, but then I was able to um, change it, obviously, contribute to it with the things that I wanted to talk about, the things that I wanted to focus on, which um, had a lot to do with, you know, so this class is kind of right, like parties as social spaces, as liminal spaces, mm -hmm. where um, you can behave differently, and then that can change the way that you understand the world, the way that you act in the world, what the world is even is for you, you know? Um, parties as these sites of potential for new radical world building. And, um, and so the focus that I had on the class was about how crucial these spaces are, especially for people who have been ostracized by society, people who have been marginalized by society. You know, like um, one of the texts that I included was from Barack Obama's Dreams of My Father, where he talks about bringing um, some of his white friends to a black party and how like after they clearly look uncomfortable and then after like, I don't know, an hour they ask to leave. And so he drives them home and on the way home, they're like, oh man, is this what you feel like all the time? Like that must suck. And then he was like, I wanted to punch them. Um, so just this idea that like, right, he has to grapple with yeah. what it means to be a, um, you know, black man, like a, um, you know, with a white mother, you know, um, like growing up in Hawaii. And, um, and these white friends from his basketball team can't even be at a, party with mostly black people for an hour and um so just thought of this yeah just this this and I mean that's been my experience of being in social environments mm -hmm. sometimes is right arriving to them and then realizing like I'm the only person of color there oh for sure and then being like I'm gonna kind of have to be on guard through yeah. this um thing that I was looking forward to as a place of rest um like as a place of celebration, as a place of maybe like a potential new world building, and I have to be on guard here. And and it change it changes everything, doesn't it? And I don't know what your experience was like growing up, but that was definitely like my everyday. That was my lived experience of being the only person in a predominantly white world. And. Um, yeah, it was super uncomfortable. It makes you question, like, how much are you trying to assimilate and how much are you... Um, what part of you is real? Because because you, there is just this guardedness around how you behave, how you act, how you speak, what you eat, like, all of those things. And it's exhausting. So, yeah, I think that, like... As you say, it's like to arrive in that context, 
changes it completely, doesn't it? Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's that's why I love being in London, for example, because it's the only place I've ever felt I can be free. I can walk down the street and no one, and I can be anonymous. And that's quite a rare thing when actually that's most people, you know, the majority of people in the, you know, white people in the UK, that's their lived experience of being anonymous. And that's, um, it's weird when that's all you want. Like, um, you want to be ignored, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, I can't remember somebody who said it. Maybe it wasn't an interview. Maybe it wasn't a television show. Who knows? Um, <laughs> where somebody was like, I, you know, I want the right to be boring. Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't, I don't want to be. A, and I say this sometimes, like, especially about my experience, like living in India. But it's like I don't want to be a parade everywhere I go all no. of the time. It's exhausting, like you said. It's exhausting. It's really exhausting, and actually, like that probably again lends itself to the kind of public going back to my not fear of public speaking but my I guess dislike of it is that like yeah I'm kind of happy being boring right now like it's a place I've never been for such a long time and I'm in a good place where I can kind of blend into the background and that's that's cool right like um Growing up as Southeast Asian in the northeast of England in like the 90s, uh, the 80s and 90s, it was like fucking hideous. Like, so why would I want to repeat any of that essentially? Like, um, so yeah, I guess going back to your comment about parties, like, it's also a place that, especially somewhere like London, I think there's a freedom um, associated with it. It's like, it brings people together in a way that I feel um, a lot of kind of, like the, the art scene like struggles to do. Um, food and music, man. <laughs> and alcohol, like, is the way to kind of, yeah, get, get people all together in a space without it, without it being tokenistic, like, people want to be there um, to have a good time, right? Like, yeah. So is that the opportunity for this kind of, like, late-night programming, in addition to this opportunity of providing different kinds of invitations into the same space? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think people don't realise the V&A Friday Late was actually the first, one of the first Friday Lates. It was started in, like, the 90s, I think. Late 90s. Um, and I guess it was originally meant to kind of span all those areas where like exhibition making and the more formal public programming doesn't and this whole idea of encouraging new audiences like it, it stemmed out of the contemporary programs team at VNA at the time which was then restructured while I was there it was yeah it was it was a mess um, and I guess in terms of when I joined the contemporary programs team itself was like relatively diverse and that was a result of probably the, the combined um, relationship with the Inspire program that, at the RCA which, which I was part of and also um, other different initiatives I guess to kind of diversify 
um, the team. But I think along with that, it meant that the type of programming that happened um, was reflective of, well, I, I would hope, like reflective of the team that was programming those events. So, um, yeah, I guess there was some moments that, yeah, were definitely a party. Like, um, like one of my favourite was being like seven, eight months pregnant and like, running boiler room night at the V&A which was like mad and it was it was packed and there were queues outside I was trying to stop people coming in but like people would people who'd never been to the museum before were like dancing in the middle of the main entrance and like well, that was like awesome right like that's a way of kind of stirring things up a bit and I think there's a real nervousness, especially within institutions, probably back then, especially to like do that kind of programming. And I'm not saying it's, it was particularly good or slick. It, it definitely wasn't it, but I liked the DIY-ness and the slight anarchy of it all. Um, yeah, that's what I like. I really liked doing until I burnt out because it was just like mad and you were doing it every the last Friday of every month and there was no break and I was paid like pittance to do what I did. So, yeah. Having been a part of this Inspire program 12 years ago yeah, and having been a part of a kind of change of guard at the V&A, mm-hmm. um, have you seen the kind of art world that you've worked in since then be impacted in really crucial ways by um, these kinds of targeted like institutional change Mm. Um, like is anything has some diversity actually like lasted I think that's an interesting question because um, it lends itself to probably my like scepticism about institutions as a whole but but only because I've, I feel like I've worked in a lot of institutions and have I myself become like institutionalized in that respect right because um, you accept certain ways of thinking um, I don't know if Inspire did, did that I think there was a lot of problems with the program but then At the same time, there's my peers are now working, you know, predominantly within um, the museum and gallery sector and and have like lead roles, you know, lead roles in that. So that's essentially what they wanted to achieve. Right. So I guess in in that regard, that's been that's been beneficial. but then I have real skepticism around, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, which were happening in 2020 and and museum and galleries responses to that. And it's suddenly um, being this very like um, tokenistic, like acknowledgement of what has been happening for centuries anyway, like, um, and this need to, to diversify and this need to be very public about that um, and yeah I don't I don't know how I feel because also what happens is a lot of people do stay in their jobs for a really long time too right? yeah how truly inherently part of that culture can that become like how how can that be an actual everyday like 
it, it it's probably a lot better now I'm sure but um, yeah I don't know I don't know the answer to that question so much do you know if that um, the inspire program is still going on no we were the last cohort so there were only two years it was a very small program so there was maybe only like 10 to 12 students per um, per intake yeah um, and yeah it was linked to the RCA so it was alongside the regular curating program too so which I, I think especially for the first co cohort there was a clash there you know between obviously like students who are paying a hell of a lot of money to be at the college and and people who are being fully funded to be there um, so they probably picked up the, um, more of those issues so by the time we joined which was the year after I think a lot of the kind of initial problems have been not ironed out but we had a good relationship with the other cohort like the other students which was great and I'm still in touch with a number of them now so it becomes a network I guess. Why wasn't the program continued? Was that like a point of contention when you were a student there about like we're the last cohort like why? What's happening? Um, yeah I don't know I don't know um, I think it was just like a set amount of time that the funding would happen for so yeah. So so can you tell me about the comics festival? Mm. So I went on maternity leave after the V&A. I had my first child and um, while I was on maternity leave, like then was kind of working out what to do because I was paid so little that like if I went back to the V&A, like after my MA, I applied and then was given the role of Friday Late Coordinator which is essentially running programming, creating the Friday Lakes, and I did that for like two years. And so it was a real dilemma in my head of like, can I go back part-time? Probably not, like because of the amount of work it takes to put on a Friday late every month. I had this real like, um, like dilemma because I needed to pay my rent, like, and I needed to also like look after my kids, so, um, I started thinking about like freelancing and one of the curators at the V&A um, had, there had been this Friday late about uh, like self-publishing and scene making and as part of that No Brow who are an independent publisher um, was kind of part of that whole program and then asked uh, one of the curators to come on board to help run LCAF, the East London Comic and Arts Festival, which is this like, was this amazing like DIY self-publishing community. Um, so di they did that for two years, I think, while I was still at the V&A. And then when I went on maternity leave and I decided to go freelance, they were like, well, actually, we really need some help doing the public program for LCAF. Um, so I came on board. Um, handed my notice in at the V&A um, and this became my like regular source of income for like six years um, it was funded by the Arts Council but then we also had to 
We also managed to fund it through like ticket sales and other support through like cultural institutions. We had like international artists fly in and um, worked with like Goethe Institute, the Finnish Institute, all, all sorts. Um, and it was, it was amazing because it was such a, um, it's such a contrast to kind of the institutional remit of the V&A and just being for it to be really kind of DIY and free and, and we were a really tiny team and we did everything from like programming and speaking to the artist to selecting the artists who would have stalls there and to like building the actual stalls and um, cleaning floors you know all everything we did everything um, so I really loved that and then obviously um, the curator who was leading it at the time then she had so many other commitments she left and then it ended up being two of us uh, left over I had a second child at the time of Elka too um, and the last Arts Council um, projects grant we had was for two years and we were very fortunate to have that at the very start of the pandemic so we found out we had that funding like maybe two months no probably like three months three or four months before the pandemic started and then obviously that shifted but it meant that we had funding for those two years during the pandemic which was an absolute lifesaver and we did we moved online we did like a posted pack that we sent out to people that we sold we did a huge amount of pub online public programming and stuff and yeah that was that was a good time and illustrators and uh, like and comic artists are like the nicest people like it, it's a community it's a family um and a, you know quite a lot of people that actually were from friday late artists i'd worked with um were also part of the festival too so it, it felt really good. So um, at that point, did you get this job as a LCN mentor? Was there like a, you know? Oh man, so that was like 2014. <laughs> so like, um, that took me up to the pandemic 2020, which so actually I have been doing LCAF for longer. I tell a lie. But while I was doing LCAF, I was doing, picking up a lot of other freelance work. So like, um, did work for Museum of London and that was putting on more late night programming um, I did research for Welcome Collection so there's a, a glasses exhibition at the, that's just opened this year and it was like however many years in the making so I was did the helped with the early research for that and um, like City of London event managing you know all, I picked up whatever whatever I was offered and I was really fortunate because a lot of these offerings came from like people I'd worked with at the V&A particularly so that really kind of built up my experience and um, and so because that in a way that I'd been working on so many different projects and that's the advantage of being freelance right you kind of like you hop around a lot and you have these freedoms but also the continuous stress of never knowing when you're ne like whether you're going to pay your rent the following month so like lcn came up when well it was just 
like in it was in the pandemic, right? Wasn't it? Maybe like so, the second lockdown, third lockdown, maybe. Yeah, maybe exactly. the third lockdown. And I was panicked. Like I, I had, I got a grant from like the A and N, you know, um, network to help support me during the pandemic and. LCN came up and it just made so much sense because I feel like while I'd been hopping around and doing all these different bits for different places like one thing was really clear was that like I really love talking to artists and I really enjoyed like seeing how they were doing and helping like supporting them and you know in whatever way I could, whether that was through like the commissioning process or or through conversations we I'd have at the festival or you know, seeing an artist go from being really emerging, like which was a lot of like Friday late artists, to, to being super like established, working with huge high end brands and stuff. Like um that was amazing for me. So LCN felt like yeah, if this is something that where I can try and like be able to have like actual full-blown hour-long conversations with artists and help support them through that, then like I'd love to be part of that. And like, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was a real turning point for me actually, LCN, because I don't know how you felt about it, but it was a really um, precarious time for everyone and a really emotional time and there was a lot of um it, it was really difficult and but I felt I actually like okay this is something I'm good at like I can listen to people and and that's I guess got to count for something especially now especially during the pandemic yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's funny, like, I think Karen's the best boss I've ever had. You're right, like, Karen's an amazing boss because she cares, and it, it's quite worrying that, um, that that can be so rare, that can be surprising, that actually you have someone in a senior role that cares. And so it really made me think not only about what it means to be an artist and to practice, especially within the pandemic, and what they need from us. And that, as you say, is like a sounding board and, and just another pair of ears, right? And like, it's not for us to say too, you know, how their practice should be, because that's the beauty of art practice, that it, it shouldn't be defined by what other people think. But at the same time, it's like what what's needed is this like sense of care within like institutions, within the frameworks that are created, like within the art world and how do we get to those points? And I think LCN for me was a really good example of how we could just just fucking listen. Right. Um, and I think it was pivotal for all of us and and it also it made me way more critical about my own work and the roles I, I was taking on and almost like being at Whitechapel was like okay that's that's the job I probably should do but what happens to the artists like after you've commissioned them for a public program like 
what happens to that relationship? Does that continue? Does it just end there? Is it like, are you just using them for the benefit of your own public program? Like, what the fuck is that? Like, which is what interested me so much about working in a studio's context. So it all goes full circle, right? Because LCN was linked to space, which is studios, which means there's this kind of longevity that, that doesn't exist unless institutions have that framework. And I'm not saying it's totally like the framework that everyone should aim for at all, but like I think that's what I was so intrigued um, at about Somerset House Studios was this this very different way of working with artists to create these like longer relationships and more hopefully like moments of care these checking in points right that, that I think um, is very hard to do if you do not have artists like physically residing <laughs> in your buildings or and and where or where that's really hard to do when um, working in the industry you're so burnt out and you're so tired and you're so exhausted yet you still are expected to continue these conversations and to be able to offer that element of care um, when actually where's the care for yourself where's the care for the staff as well in order for that additional care to be facilitated properly and like with due diligence it all goes full circle really doesn't it um, which is why I'm still cynical and in my perpetual existential crisis and will eventually probably just buy a, a van and sell ice cream because who doesn't love ice cream right and that's care <laughs> like, <laughs> that's food and that's sugar <laughs> like, and you're still cynical because um, you don't necessarily see a lot of opportunities that allow for this kind of longer term care being made by kind of like large art institutions. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, which is why it's it's a unique thing to have stu artist studios in a large institution. It's a unique position to be in and I think with that comes additional problems but also like huge benefits in, in the conversations that you can have which you just don't have the time for in, in, in other contexts. In, you know, if you're running a public program, you're expected to kind of put on weekly talks and workshops whilst also like thinking larger picture two years ahead. Like, you know, it's madness. Um, and no one's paid enough for it. <laughs> so it, it's... So you're also dealing with the stress of how do you live day to day and how do you like finance yourself and add to that if you have a family and you're trying to like maintain having children and somewhere like London because of course you need to be in London and because that's the, where the freedom, your own freedom and anonymity lies. So it's the perpetual like real how do you get off that. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said about care and just listening. LCN definitely opened my eyes up to a lot more and, and made me probably less cynical. <laughs> so, um, yeah, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, just to like have it on the record or whatever, was um, so we had the event at Whitechapel mm -hmm. and um, 
I had spoken to, I think, the person who does your sound. Sam. Sam. Yeah. And then I... Um, was like, how long do you think it'll take? And he was like, oh, like a week or something. Yeah. And then I didn't tell anybody that um, I had a fast turnaround. Yeah. And so what happened was I wanted to release it as a part of the middle of the series, mm-hmm. whereas now I'm just like, what a stupid idea. Obviously release it at the end. Yeah. Um, and because I assumed Whitechapel would have like thousands of staff or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, they told me a week, we're gonna do a week. Yeah. Whereas when I work with artists, um, obviously there's like so many soft deadlines. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't communicate any of this to you. Yeah. And um, and so then, the the event happened. Um, of course, Sam got COVID, yeah. and um, there wasn't anybody that could send me the recording even and I think somebody actually came in like on a Saturday to to try to send it to me and then it was like one of the tracks was missing I was getting really stressed out because um I was kind of getting some push from like um one of my distributors Mm -hmm. and so I was pushing you and then you had a moment where you were just like I need to take care of my people you know and it was just really instructive for me in terms Mm -hmm. of how like like how do you communicate clearly with everybody mm. and how do you inbuild time mm. so that you have that time to care? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you not assume things yeah. of any body that you work with, yeah. regardless of if they're an individual or, or an institution or a team? Yeah. I think, cause we've already talked about this, obviously like after it all happened and we had a conversation about it and like, I think it's really good because I think we're both very like upfront people. We're Scorpios, right? <laughs> so that's what we do. And I think there's, um, it's really important for us to be able to have this conversation. I think it, came, it was in March, wasn't it? So um, we had this huge, large event. You know, we had several events every week. Sam then got COVID and so wasn't able to kind of be part of the very first kind of takeover series, which was which I was trying to initiate at Whitechapel, which was like kind of a late Friday equivalent at Whitechapel would be first Thursdays. So there was a lot of pressure on all sides. And actually, this goes back to the care element. I think there's sometimes an assumption that when you work in a institution like Whitechapel or any other large institution that there's a lot of support systems in place when actually at Whitechapel in terms of public programming it is kind of really just like me and Sam because it was me and Sam shall I say um, because I have left now and the, the pressure is insurmountable the amount of time of your personal time as well as your like the time you're meant to be working was yeah it was insurmountable because it there there was so much pressures on all sides having said this I think we also as an institution as me as the curator of, of public programs has a duty of care to the people that I'm working with right so that's Sam, for sure, but also the artist. So I think it's from my side, and, and we've spoken about this too. Like I, I think it's important. I learned from that experience in terms of like working out that 
it needs to be communicated more you know that there needs to be levels of communication whereby we're saying like look that explaining what what actually the system is like inside because I don't think people see that um, but then I guess it's having that time to do that and I think that's that was the problem wasn't it it was just a lack of time um, and during yeah have someone having COVID just threw everything <laughs> out of the box um, and made it an incredibly tricky month but like I think all these moments and all these like things that have happened continue to like build up that question in my head around care and 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 what are we really like valuing in terms of like our positions as like programmers as like kind of maintaining these like these structures these art structures like actually what is that doing to the people that are within those systems and that are trying to kind of make the best of I guess quite a bad situation <laughs> often more often than not and it shouldn't be that way like we should have enough time for someone else to come in and find the audio for your recording you know I, I shouldn't have to turn around to you and say I, I can't give you this like it's not it's not okay is it and I think that's probably reflective of this like breakdown that can often happen when you're so kind of overworked and, and then one the person you rely on really heavily goes under like there's no support systems for that so I got COVID for example in July when I was like due to um you know those nocturnal creatures which was like the big multi-site festival that happens every year um and that for me was like breaking point because there was no one to pick up that work like as much as my team and i say that my team but you know we're talking the education team as a whole like no one within like the public programming there is no you know the team is was me so it was like um I found that really difficult because I found myself back in that position of um when I was at the V&A and being overstretched and overworked and underpaid and it's only afterwards that people are like oh yeah there's you know we really value you we really think you know um there's been such amazing program oh but you've left now and you, you don't we're not paying you anymore now by the way but like um but we're going to put other systems in, in place to make this better. That That's great, but that doesn't resolve it for you. It's just that constant cycle that I find myself in. And like, I think, especially with, um, which is probably why I'm so like, at the moment taking on these shorter term contracts, because I, I remain cynical and I remain almost like waiting for myself to burn out and not be able to kind of, um, to do due diligence and, and, and do good by people and that's not a position I want to be in again so it's um, yeah that was a hard time <laughs> it was a hard time for sure and I am I am sorry for my part in that and no, no, um, you, have, you have nothing to apologize for and we've had this conversation yeah. <laughs> still sorry though <laughs> um, and I appreciate yeah being able to talk to you about this yeah. okay you gotta go 
very last question. Yeah. We can do it real quick. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, do we talk about what uh, you thought we would talk about, or do you have any questions for me, or do you have anything else you'd just like to say? Um, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you as much as I also hate talking. <laughs> um, I probably sounded incredibly cynical throughout this whole conversation, but I'm still here and I'm still working within the art field for whoever wants to offer me a job next. So like, um, as long as I can, can kind of pay my, um, pay my bills every month and like get some joy in what I'm doing like right now I'm really enjoying having conversations with artists and that's a really nice position to be in right now and um, yeah I hope that we can continue to be critical of the world that we're working in and that we can continue to be um, to think about the fact that actually what's important is the people within within um, this field and it's the care that we offer them and to artists and those working in the industry like that it needs to be across the board like because right now it's not happening and it needs there needs to be more of it so that's what I would say so good thank you so much thank you You can find more information about Ruth Lee and her work, as well as links to what we spoke about today and other interviews with people in the arts on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities. If you would like to help make the next season of this podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva DeWerden, the episode artwork was created by Julia Rotti, and the theme song was made by Alessandra Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in next week for my conversation with Catriona Beals.